So let's look at uh, John chapter 2. Now we begin, uh, if you remember, we looked at John 1, 1 through 18, where uh, that's known as the prologue of John's gospel. That's where uh, John the evangelist describes who Jesus is from uh, uh, the, before time began, at the beginning of creation, uh, and even into his incarnation, uh, and described his purpose to make God known to the world. Uh, then we picked up with John the Baptist and his ministry and saw that John was an ordinary man. He had an extraordinary assignment. He was not Moses. He was not the prophet. He was not Elijah. He was not the Messiah. Uh, but he was one like Moses, uh, one like Elijah, uh, who would make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, and when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, uh, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, uh, then we see Jesus uh, uh, connecting with the disciples of John the Baptist, Andrew and Simon, Philip and Nathaniel, and Jesus changing their life. And uh, now we come to chapter 2. I I did draw a little bit of a map here. Uh, In chapter 2 through chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, to the end of chapter 4, Jesus makes a circle or a cycle. He uh, begins with the wedding at Cana in Galilee. This is Galilee up here. He begins with the wedding at Cana. He makes his way down to this territory here. Then he comes through Samaria in the village of Sychar. Uh, And this blocked area right here is where Jewish people didn't travel. They would make their way across the Jordan River up here and they would bypass Samaria altogether. uh, 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 A Jewish person uh, um, would do their best to stay away from Samaria at great expense, Uh, and uh, that's because they didn't like the Samaritans because they were traitors um, in their mind and that kind of thing. But Jesus didn't make that path. Um, He went straight to the village of Sychar and then made his way. At the end of chapter 4, we see he is back in Galilee in 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 the town of Cana. All right, all that to say is that this provides a section of, uh, of uh, this, the biblical material. That's chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 54. Uh, so we begin at the wedding of Cana. Let me go ahead and uh, read this, and uh, then we'll talk about it. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, uh, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If you would, underline hour there, because uh, as John writes, uh, as the evangelist writes, hour is an important word. Uh, If you were to flip over to John chapter 12, I think it's verse 23, you see that Jesus says, now my hour has come. Uh, What does he mean by hour? Well, what we'll see in John chapter 12 and what I can tell you 
tonight is hour is a description of the time of his arrest, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and even his ascension. Uh, So when Jesus is talking about his hour, he's talking specifically about perhaps the the struggle and the pain that that he would experience, uh, and, and we get hints of that, but uh, in John 12, it becomes very apparent that he's talking specifically about the whole enchilada of his passion, his, uh, his arrest, his death, uh, his burial, his resurrection, and even into his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God. All right, so Jesus says, uh, what, what's this concern? What does your concern have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. And his mother said to the servants... Like only a mother can. I, I, you you got to read this with some humor. So Jesus says to uh, his mom, why are you telling me? And, G, and Mary responds by not responding to Jesus and turns to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And I think that's kind of a, 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 a beautiful picture of the relationship between a mother and a son. Jesus saying, I don't know why you're telling me this. And the mother doesn't say you're going to take responsibility for it. She just communicates he's going to take responsibility for it. Uh, so uh, he says to, she says to the servants, do what he says. Now, there were set, verse 6, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons of water apiece. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine uh, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they uh, did not stay there very many days. All right, so let's, let's unpack these 12 verses, do it um, in, in uh, uh, somewhat br- brief fashion. Uh, number one, this is the first miracle Jesus did in the Gospel of John. And, and so that's why John says, and this was the first miracle. It was because it was the first miracle, right? Uh, and it, it's interesting. He did it at a wedding. He did it at the behest of his mother. And it was uh, extremely interesting to me that his mom knew what his, her son could do. We don't have any record of him doing anything like this before, but here it comes out. It, it, it blows up. It becomes a, a, a clear manifestation of his glory. Now, glory is another important term. We've looked at it already in uh, verse 14 and verse 18 uh, of chapter 1. Uh, but when we see Jesus manifesting his glory later in John 17... In this high priestly prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son might also glorify you. Uh, 
as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've finished the work you've given me. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work you've given me to do. Glory is a very important term in John's gospel, and it points to uh, the magnification, the majesty, the, 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 uh, the holiness, the otherness of God and of Jesus, the representative of God, God in flesh on earth. Uh, Jesus reveals the glory of God, and when we see Jesus, we behold the glory of God shining through him. Uh, To say it in simple terms, glory is that which points us to God. It is uh, shorthand for saying this is the character of God and the the content of of his action. This is his ability and and his uh, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. It's it's who God is. And so when John uses glory in relation to Jesus, he's saying Jesus revealed uh, the character of God in his activity right here. He did something only God can do. In fact, all the miracles are a manifestation of, of his glory. All the miracles describe, define, delineate that Jesus is um, uh, from God, sent from God, and Jesus even says, uh, the Father and I are one. So as we look at this passage, uh, we don't need to just skip right on by uh, the the miracle at at the wedding of Cana. Uh, But it is important for us to understand that this kind of uh, puts Jesus on the scene. It becomes uh, a good kind of gossip in the community about who Jesus is. He turned water into wine. Uh, A quick note, and this is a footnote. I don't even think I footnoted it, but uh, there uh, has been some talk, uh, at least when I was growing up, that the wine that Jesus made wasn't really wine. It was, uh, it was more like grape juice. Well, that's not the text. The text itself indicates that Jesus made some good wine. And uh, the definition of good wine was it had some kick to it. Uh, I remember preaching this uh, sermon, uh, uh, I don't know how, several years ago, and uh, uh, I... I talked about, again, just trying to debunk some of the, and that's traditions on Southern Baptist Park. We were trying our best to make sure that we were all teetotalers so much that Jesus could definitely not have made wine. Um, uh, but that's just, that's, that's not being true to the text. Um, the very uh, context of the passage Uh, And if you want to talk about not drinking, we can do that, you know. Uh, There's a reason I don't drink, you know, and and we can talk about that. But this text, Jesus made wine, and it had some kick to it. So when I was preaching this, I finished preaching, and uh, the next week, one of our children, not mine, but one of the children in the church, drew a picture uh, of of the sermon I preached that week, and it was... uh, 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 a water pot, and it had H2O on the front of it, and it said, with a kick. I uh, thought that was good. So, uh, got through. Uh, but we need to be true to the text, 
not true to our traditions first. You see, if we're true to our traditions before we're true to the text, we're no better than the Pharisees that Jesus battled throughout this gospel. We need to be true to the text. And if we have sincere disagreements about the text, I'm happy to have those conversations. But if we're just foistering up our own traditions and ignoring the text, then we need to understand that we're under judgment and discipline from holy God because his word is the rule of faith and authority for how we live. Uh, not our traditions. I have traditions. Uh, as many of you who follow me on Facebook know, one of my traditions is eating ice cream and chocolate chip cookies almost every night. Um, uh, I, I have uh, shied away from putting uh, that bowl of ice cream and all my accoutrements that go along with it every time I eat it, but I do have that as a tradition. But I do understand one thing. I turned 50 this year. Can you believe that? I turned 50 this year. Stop calling me a young pup, okay? I, I, I understand it's relative, but my children don't think I'm young anymore, all right? So, uh, but I turned 50 this year. I'm not going to be able to eat that bowl of ice cream indefinitely, so I'm just enjoying it while I can, you know? I, uh, but traditions are fine. It's tra- there's, there's nothing wrong with traditions until the tradition becomes more important than the Word of God. Until the tradition becomes more important than the will of God. And we all, we all have to work diligently to evaluate whether we love our traditions more than we love what God wants. All of us have to evaluate that, beginning with me. And so uh, I just put that out there and let the Spirit of God work in your heart and, uh, and show you Uh, what work needs to happen in that regard. And by the way, if you think that, oh, well, that's not me, that, I mean, Eric may struggle with that. I don't struggle with that. I would just contend that probably uh, it's all of us. Uh, We may just be blind to it. Maybe just say a quick prayer. Lord, will you show me where I have elevated my traditions above what you have said in your word and what you desire as revealed in your word. Just a great prayer. And then admit and confess it as sin because that's exactly what it is. It's sin. Okay? All right, so that, that's that. So Jesus is up here in Cana. Isn't that a cute map? Have y'all ever... I've never drawn a map before. I thought that was good. It took me back in time. All right, so, so Jesus then uh, turns the water and the wine uh, and then... Uh, Verse 11 is really key because it's introducing the book of signs, okay? The book of signs, uh, chapter uh, 2 all the way to chapter uh, uh, 12, and that's the book of signs. Uh, Then we get into the book of glory, okay? So the book of signs, chapter 2 through 12, and uh, and so verse 11 kind of introduces that. Um, he, le- he leaves Cana and he goes down to Capernaum. This is Cana. Capernaum's right around here, okay, down here. So it's south, southward, uh, really south, eastward. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so he leaves there. He goes to Capernaum. Now, verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, He leaves here, and he goes here, 
So why does he say he goes up to? Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's the, he goes up to the mountain, all right? Uh, and uh, so he, he, he goes to the, to the feast uh, of the Passover, uh, and again, we return to the feast of the Passover in John chapter 12. Uh, in, in verse 20, we see that the feast of the Passover is getting ready to happen. Now, that Passover is the last Passover Jesus was going to have with his disciples, John 13. Uh, this is the first one. Uh, so he goes up to Jerusalem, and, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money, uh, changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. I love that verse. Uh, verse 18, so the Jews answered and said, what sign do you uh, show us since you do these things? They're saying, well, what gives you the right, the authority uh, to do this thing? The temple doesn't belong to you. Uh, we're in charge of the temple. Uh, and uh, Jesus said in verse 19, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, he had ri- uh, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Uh, before we get into the meat of this, I want you to look at verse 22, because one of the things that John the Evangelist does is he adds commentary. Uh, he he kind of breaks the narrative with his own explanations. And, uh, and often when he's giving commentary, he's talking about what the disciples remembered. They didn't get it right then, but they remembered later on. And this is one of those encounters where uh, John the Evangelist says, well, uh, later on, the disciples figured it out that Jesus wasn't talking about the literal physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. All right, so let's go back and let's look and see what the cleansing of the temple is about. This is on page uh, 20, 23 and 24. Uh, one of the ways that we look, why in the world did Jesus go in and uh, drive out money changers and, and turn over tables and that kind of thing? Why did he do that? Uh, Well, the simple answer is uh, there was something about the temple that was failing God's intended purpose. God's intended purpose, and Jesus described it in this way. He said said, uh, God's uh, temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. Uh, Prayer being shorthand, not just for praying, but shorthand for communion with God. Uh, the temple and the temple courts, both the outer courts and the inner courts, the, the, the court of women, the court for Gentiles, all of that was supposed to be a gathering place where people would focus on the one true God and encounter him in worship. That was the intention of the temple. Somewhere along the line, uh, what was happening was not in line with or in sync with the intended purposes of God. Some have suggested, I'm going to give you some options here, some have suggested that what offended Jesus was the 
the, the coinage. And it's not the money. By the way, this is not about money. I, I just want to make that clear. This was not about money exchanging hands in the temple. That's not what this was about. Um, some have gone so far to say is if uh, the reason they're called money changers is because uh, in order to uh, purchase something in the temple, you had to exchange Roman coin for temple coin uh, because you could not use or, uh, to give your tithe. You had to exchange Roman coin for temple, to- temple coin. Uh, and the reason was because on the Roman coin, there was embossed what? Caesar. And so, uh, in the Jewish frame of mind, they could not use um, a coin with Caesar's imprint on it for holy things. Okay? So, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with that. But, but some have surmised that what really offended Jesus wasn't that... Uh, uh, that there were selling stuff for sacrifice. That was part of something they had to do. What really offended him was the show of piety without the heart of piety. The show of piety, I'm exchanging this Roman coin to get a temple coin. That's a show of piety. And, and I'm going to go through this motion, but my heart is nowhere close to God. And so some have suggested that that is what uh, burned uh, in the heart of Jesus. Others have suggested uh, that uh, where they were selling uh, all the stuff and doing all the exchanges of currency and all that kind of stuff uh, was in the very place where Gentiles, the only place where Gentiles could gather uh, in the temple. You see, the Gentiles were not permitted uh, uh, beyond a certain door. And if they went beyond that certain door, they would be killed. I mean, there were guards in the temple, uh, standing guard. And if you were a Gentile and you walked beyond that one, one door, uh, you, were, you were going to be put to death. It was so important. And so the Gentiles had a place uh, that God had designed in the building of the temple. The Gentiles, the, the seekers after God... They had a place where they could gather and commune with God, worship God, or seek after God. But because of all the merchandise that was, and, and, and uh, uh, economics that was going on, uh, transactions going on in that place, the Gentiles had no room to worship. And some have suggested that that's what offended Jesus. And both of those are good options. I, I, I do think that probably the second is a a more reliable option than the first, although I, I see the point of both. Ultimately, though, what really uh, offended Jesus was that the temple had a particular purpose, and that was to be a place where people gathered and communed with God. Not where they gathered and socialized, not where they gathered and, and uh, 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 put on a show, but it's where they gathered to connect with God in such a way that their lives are significantly different. And so, that wasn't happening. What was happening was the motions of worship and the motions of religiosity, but not the substance of it. And that's what offended Jesus. And 
Need I make the point? Sure, I will. I'm, I'm fearful that we gather in church and we go through the motions and we play our spiritual games, but we don't come for the right purposes. A person who doesn't know Jesus, they come for a lot of different reasons. But for those of us who do know Jesus, whose lives have been transformed by God's grace through faith in Jesus, it is absolutely an indictment against us when we gather here with the wrong intent and the wrong attitude, the wrong posture, the wrong heart. I, I know that many of you, like me, grew up in a setting, uh, a cultural setting, where you went to church on Sunday morning. I, I remember my freshman year at Baylor. I went to Baylor for one year and then decided I couldn't afford it. Get, could get a different education for less money. The difference was $132 a semester hour, which I would gladly pay today, by the way. Uh, man, but that's how it was $132 a semester hour at Baylor, and uh, I could get a uh, uh, a degree at Lamar University for $16 a semester hour. And uh, I figured it was just a smarter deal uh, to, uh, uh, to go to Lamar. But the one, uh, the one uh, uh, semester, one year, two semesters, the one uh, semester that I was there, the first semester I was there, I, I just remember, um, I, I hesitate to call it hypocrisy, but that's what it was. It was uh, students who did all kinds of craziness on Friday or Saturday night, but they all got up on Sunday morning. It's not that they went to church, but they dressed up as if they went to church before they went to the dining hall for lunch. And I thought to myself, that's just sad. I'm afraid some of us still do that. We still play that game. And just to be honest, I think that God is more offended by our religious expressions when our heart is far from him than he is from a pagan, someone who doesn't know Jesus, who walks in here with a beer can in his hand. And he doesn't know that's not appropriate in a Baptist church. Go to England, that's, that's perfectly fine. But he, he doesn't know that that's a, a bad thing. But boy, we'll jump down his throat and call him all kinds of things and uh, forbid him from entering into the gathering. All the while, we accept people and sit across from them day after day, week after week, year after year in our church whose heart is hard toward God and are just putting on a show. And you might say, well, how do you know? I don't. But the closer you are to someone, the more you see. Am I right? So, that's the temple. Okay, so Jesus cleaned it out. 
Um, now, uh, in verses 23 and 24, it says that when, when he was in Jerusalem in the, uh, uh, in the feast of the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all people. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Bottom line is, I don't know your heart and you don't know mine. And we can fool each other all day and all night. But you're not going to fool God. You... you, you you can't bluff him. He knows your heart. And friends, could I, just, could I just suggest that we need to worry more about what God knows about our heart than what image we're portraying to other people? Could, could I suggest that because God does know your heart and mine, that that's where we need to begin in self-evaluation and conduct in lifestyle and habits. Let's begin where it really counts, with the knower of our heart. I just think it leads to a healthier, happier life on one hand. But it also frees you up from trying to impress people on the other. And it gets down to the heart of us. It gets down to the real of us. You know why people say they're hypocrites in the church? Because they're hypocrites in the church. And I'm one too. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. God who knows our hearts, we can be real with him, and he puts us in a body of believers where we should risk enough with each other where we could be real with one another. All of us are struggling with something, huh? All of us have sin that seems to pound on our soul's door all the time. All of us are struggling. And God has placed us in a community of believers, a family of faith designed to help us on that journey. That's not always easy. Sometimes in my family, my dad has had to talk to me about my attitude or my behavior or things that don't conform to what is appropriate as a follower of Jesus and a son of my dad. Now as a father, I look at my daughters and on occasion I've had to do the same thing. And sometimes in the church, we've got to call out behavior that is inconsistent with the Christ that we claim to follow. But that's done in love because we're struggling together. There's also the positive side of that. That's the hard side. The positive side is, man, there's great joy when we walk the journey And we don't have to walk the journey alone. We are in this together. We are striving together 
to bring glory to God as we follow after Jesus who has saved us. So put aside pretense. I mean, just set it aside. And get real. First with God. Then with those closest to you. And with the family of faith. Now, that's not... uh, That's not suggesting that any of us come out and have this long confessions of our deepest, darkest sins. That's that's not what what this is designed for. uh, One one of the categories that I think is very important for us is relationships are not all equal. You know this in your life. You have those that are the closest to you. And we all need closest relationships. Those are the people that we can bear all and do bear all with. Those are the closest relationships. uh, And, you know, I've got two or three relationships that are like that. Um, My wife, obviously, there's nothing about me that she doesn't know. Zero. I'm thankful to be able to say that. There's absolutely nothing about me that she doesn't know. My dad, I have three brothers. There's nothing about me that they don't know. Then I have closer relationships. There are some things about me that my closer relationships don't know. And that's not bad. That's not being secretive. That's not being a hypocrite. That's just sharing along the lines of relationship. But the majority, 99.9% of who I am, my closer relationships, they know it. And I have some of those closer relationships in this family of faith. And then you have close relationships. And those close relationships are a picture of the church body as a whole. You see, um, there are things that I willingly share with the entire church without hesitation. It's not always easy, and sometimes it's, it's, uh, it puts me in a bind. It's a little more vulnerable than I want to be, but I think it's appropriate for me to share uh, even some of the most intimate things about my life with the body of believers, the church. I think that is healthy. Um, and, and I do that. Uh, you know, I grew up in a time where pastors didn't actually acknowledge that they sinned. I, I, you know that they did, but they didn't acknowledge it. There was that, that sacredness of the pulpit that, you know, if you, if you come clean about sin, or, or they would say it in such a way, I, 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 uh, quoting Paul, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm the wickedest of sinners, you know. Uh, but not really talking about it, you know, just just quoting Scripture. Uh, And one of the things that I've tried to do as I've been pastor here is, I mean, I've sinned, and I try to talk about it. I don't talk about the details of my sin, uh, nor should I. Not, Not with the close, sometimes with the closer, always with the closest. And then you have those that are... uh, Near, but far. 
What I mean by that is they are friends, but they're not part of the family of faith. And uh, they understand certain things about your life and they get certain things, but you don't entrust yourself to the near and far. They're near, they're close. Uh, Y'all go play golf together or y'all go shop together. Y'all might even go on a uh, a weekend fun uh, girls trip or guys trip together. They're near, but they're far. There's parts of your life that they'll never understand because they're not followers of Jesus. Well, as we, the church, as we grow in intimacy with Jesus, it means that we need to grow in intimacy with one another where it is safe for us to share more with those who are close. And we all, within the body of believers, have those who are closer that we can share our lives with. Uh, None of us have to make this journey alone. By the way, that's free. That's not part of John's gospel. All right. So as we move from chapter 2 to chapter 3, then we come to perhaps the most famous chapter in all of uh, John's gospel. Uh, It is Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Nicodemus at night, Uh, otherwise known as Nicodemus. Uh, There was... uh, Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. All right, so there goes back to the fact that Jesus was manifesting God's glory. He was revealing God. He was demonstrating who God is. Um, And uh, the most visible demonstration, at least initially, were were the signs that he did. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Uh, He's one of the Sanhedrin. He's a religious leader in Jerusalem. Um, And uh, at this point, uh, the the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, uh, they were hesitant about Jesus, but they were still, um, you know, they were still watching. Um, they, they weren't in open hostility. That doesn't happen until John chapter 9. Uh, open hostility comes in John chapter 9. There are hints at it in John 8, but John chapter 9, uh, there is uh, an out-and-out open hostility toward Jesus. But in John 3, when Nicodemus comes, uh, Jesus has offended the Sanhedrin by cleaning out the temple, uh, and the religious leaders wanted to know, what right do you have to do that? Uh, and Jesus says, uh, I, three days, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebuild this temple. He's pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection. Why was that important? It gives us a clue, and I think, and I'm skipping back to John chapter 2, sorry. Um, it gives us a clue that the centerpiece for worship is no longer a building or a temple, not even in Jerusalem. But the centerpiece of worship is Jesus Christ alone. He is the center of our worship. We come to worship Him. Uh, And we, whenever we become confused about the importance of a building, it's not saying that the temple was no longer important. It just was important for a different reason. Jesus replaces the temple. He replaces all the temple uh, sacrifices and the whole sacrificial system of the temple. Jesus replaces it. He becomes the temple. And he passes on to us the privilege of being the temple of God 
by pouring his spirit within us, which we get to in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. All right, so uh, we look at worship no longer through the lens of a place that we attend. Please hear this. We look at worship no longer as a place where we attend. That's not worship. Now, the place is good, and it's important because it gives us a place to gather. But worship happens as we gather around Jesus, regardless the place we are. Okay? So the place carries a lot of different kind of things. I, I, I remember uh, when I went to Jerusalem and uh, I stood on the steps of the temple, um, uh, the ruins of the temple. It, it shook me. But not because it's an artifact of history, nor because it has a special holiness to it. It shook me because I was standing on steps that I knew Jesus had walked. Now, that's the difference. Worship is not confined to a building or a place, no matter what uh, affections we may have for a place. Worship is defined by Jesus who died for sinners and rose again for our justification. All right? Uh, Then, so John chapter 3, Jesus had offended the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, but Nicodemus comes uh, to Jesus. It's interesting, he comes by night. Y'all probably heard this before. Let me kind of run through this. Uh, Nicodemus comes at night. Uh, Most suggest that that's because he didn't want to be seen by his buddies um, that, uh, that he was hanging out with Jesus or uh, he wanted a private audience with Jesus and he was certain to have uh, no, none of the crowd out. We don't really know um, uh, if uh, there were others around, but it, the, all the indicators are that it was just Nicodemus and Jesus. Uh, so Nicodemus came to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we see that you have been sent from God. Later on, the Sanhedrin would deny that Jesus was sent from God. They, they would just they would throw that away. Uh, Nicodemus says, uh, we've seen these miracles, and unless someone's been sent from God, there's no way they could do these miracles. Again, the Pharisees deny that later on, uh, that, uh, that Jesus is sent from God, or that he did those type of miracles because of God. Uh, but he goes on and he asks them, asks Jesus uh, uh, to, to teach him. So verse 3, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The picture of water and the Spirit is the picture of salvation and the Spirit of God indwelling someone. Uh, Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What he's saying is, um, uh, somewhat controversially uh, today, not so controversially when Jesus said it, but uh, basically, he's saying the Spirit's going to save who the Spirit's going to save. That's, that's what he's saying. Uh, now, we can work that out in our own theological systems, however that works today. But what he was saying is the Spirit goes where he wills, and he's going to rescue those whom he rescues. 
okay? Um, I always feel like I need to add the caveat when I say something like that. And God desires all men to be saved and uh, all to come to the knowledge of the truth and none to perish, okay? So let me go ahead and say that. Uh, But uh, there is clearly, uh, especially in John's gospel, the whole of John's gospel, uh, there is um, a clear indicator of God's sovereignty in salvation. And what I mean by that is it begins and it ends with God. And, and you're not going to be saved unless the Spirit of God does that work in you. Um, and, uh, and, and what is um, what was troubling for me, especially uh, about 20 years ago when I first had to tackle these verses, what's troubling is that there's an indicator here that, as Jesus says, and language is always imprecise, but it it gives the indication that the Spirit goes to you and to you, but maybe not to you, maybe not to you. There is that picture there, um, and, uh, and, and that is a true picture in this regard. Uh, if you're a believer, the Spirit came to you and born you again, and if you're a believer, the Spirit came to you and born you again. I'm not going to... If I'm not a believer... We know that the Spirit did not come to me and born me again. Does that make sense? Okay. By the way, that is uh, academic uh, straddling the fence. And y'all might not appreciate it, but some will. Uh, so as we, uh, as we look at this passage, we see that, that Jesus says you don't need to be more religious and you don't need more information. You need to be born again. Being born again was some of the most visual imagery that Jesus could have used. It's not that you need a a reformation of character. It's not that you need a new system of governance. It's not that you need a a, a new uh, uh, 12-step program. It's not that you need um, a, a resolution for the new year. What you need is to be born again. You need a brand new start. You need something to change on, uh, in you from the inside out. And it's something that you can't create for yourself. You cannot be born again on your own. It just doesn't work that way. If you're going to be born again, it's going to happen because the Spirit of God uh, 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 borns you again, births you again. I don't know. It saves you. How's that? Um, so Jesus uses very shocking imagery, and that's why Nicodemus says, how, how, can, how can a man be born again? Jesus answers, says, says the Spirit of God does that work. Um, he, he, uh, Nicodemus goes on, verse 9, he says, uh, how can these things be? Uh, verse 10, Jesus said, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen, and you don't receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, he's talking to himself, uh, talking about himself, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Again, verse 13, which we sometimes ignore because we always love verse 13's cousin, verse 16. Verse 13 is a very powerful picture of the incarnation. The Son of Man, God's representative, came and has appeared before you. He says, I've descended from heaven, and here I am. It's a powerful statement. And he's making it to 
a teacher of the law who should understand these things. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus always, always, throughout his ministry on earth, always was pointing to the cross. And verse 14 is pointing to the cross. Verse 15, uh, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So Jesus goes on. He really gives the whole, uh, the whole progression of his ministry and the purpose of his ministry and why some will reject him. Uh, he says, uh, Nicodemus, I'm here. I'm the son of man. I've come from God. You're right, I've been sent from God, I've descended from heaven, but I'm going to be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness to bring healing to those who were suffering. Uh, I'm going to be lifted up, but I'm going to be lifted up on a cross so that whoever believes in me will live and not die. Verse 16 and 17, I don't have to rehearse those, I hope, but uh, everyone believing in Jesus, that, that's the language. Uh, those who are believing in Jesus. Those who are believing in Jesus. There's only one way that you can experience eternal life. There's only one way. There are not three ways. There are not two ways. There's only one way. And that is believing on Jesus. Any other belief system is wrong. It's an error. It, is, it leads to condemnation and judgment. There is only one way to God, and that is believing on Jesus. Jesus came not to condemn but to save. However, there is condemnation. Again, in great ironic fashion, John says, uh, John, uh, writing Jesus' word, says, Jesus says, hey, uh, the condemnation is this. Uh, you reject me because you love the, the darkness more than you love the light. And I'm the light of the world that's come to shine in your darkness, but you have loved the darkness more. By the way, this condemnation fit the feet of, of the religious more than it fit the feet of the common person, the person that wasn't a religious person. Uh, I, I mean, they were all religious. I'm talking about the religious leaders. Uh, G- Jesus was uh, preaching a very pointed message uh, to a religious leader, and he's saying, saying, even you love the darkness more than the light that is shining before you, and this would be the condemnation of, of, the, of the Pharisees. Uh, apart from Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, uh, we are unclear and uncertain that, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, embraced Jesus. Later on in the book of Acts, we see that many of the priests did believe in Jesus. But right here, Jesus is condemning those who, who uh, put on the show of religiosity, but he's saying, you're still loving the darkness more than the light. Now, our problem 
in the 21st century is that we have a bunch of people that come to church and we put on a show of living in the light, but the reality is we're still loving darkness more than the light. We've embraced our religion, but we have rejected Jesus. And that is the indictment against the church today. We knew this was going to happen because Jesus preached a a sermon or taught a lesson on wheat and tares. Right? Y'all remember that in Matthew's gospel? He talks about wheat and tares. Wheat, those are the people that are saved. Tares, those are the people that aren't saved. And the wheat and the tares grow together. And God sorts them out at the end. We have people in the church right now who look like wheat, but they're just tares. They look like they love the darkness, uh, love the light, but the, the, the reality is they love the darkness more. They've rejected Jesus. They've embraced a religion, but, but they're still lost and they're going to hell. Being part of a church like this doesn't get you to heaven. Never has and never will. Only those who believe on Jesus have eternal life. All right, so I'm doing pretty good. I'm almost done with chapter 3. So uh, what condemns us? Well, we love the darkness more than we love the light, and our deeds are evil. What makes our deeds evil? You say, well, there are evil deeds out there that people are doing. No, what makes the deeds evil is that they are um, uh, activities that are not consistent with a follower of Jesus or consistent with the character of God or consistent with his will. And as long as we're living and pretending like we have a relationship with God because we're religious, our deeds are evil. Okay? It's the only way it works. Now, what we like to do is we like to, we like to think that because I'm doing so, a bunch of good stuff, like I'm going and feeding the poor, I'm going and, and, and helping out the soup kitchen, or, or uh, going and, and I've donated my coat to, to people who are homeless, you know, that kind of thing, because we do good things, we say, oh, well, you know, I, I, yeah, I, that's all, that's, no, that's, it may seem like a good deed, but as John describes it, as Jesus describes it here in John 3, that's an evil deed. Why? Because you're just trying to cover up the fact that you love the darkness more than you love the light. So, as we uh, move on, uh, we go on and, and uh, it, it's an encounter between uh, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, they get in close proximity. Verse 22, it says, uh, and uh, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and uh, there he remained with them uh, uh, and, and baptized. It's not clear in verse 22 whether it was Jesus that was baptizing or his disciples that were baptizing. Okay? It's not clear, and, and scholars debate one or the other. Um, we don't have any record of Jesus literally you know, baptizing people. We, we have no record of that. This is as close as it gets. Um, and, uh, and, and so we're not really sure if it was the disciples baptizing or Jesus baptizing. Uh, but verse 23 says, Now John was also uh, baptizing in Anon near Salim, uh, because there was much water there, and they had come 
uh, and they came and were baptized. Now, here's what happens. Jesus is here uh, in John 3. He's in Jerusalem, uh, and he comes back up uh, to Galilee. All of this is Galilee. All of this is Galilee. He comes up right around here to an, a non in, near Salim. And there's a lot of water there, so uh, people were baptized. That, uh, they didn't have a neat little baptistry where you could go and fill it up with water and dunk them in a tub. You had to wait until there was actually water, or if you couldn't wait, you had to go to where there was water, when there was water up there. Uh, so uh, he's up there, he's baptizing. Um, verse 24, and John had not yet been thrown into prison. Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jewish people about purification. That's generally about uh, uh, the washing of the hands and, and uh, uh, how far you travel on a given day and, and that kind of thing. The purification laws that the Jewish people followed uh, and the Jewish leaders were uh, so uh, uptight about. They were uptight about it too. Um, verse 26, so they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, uh, he being Jesus, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, uh, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears, uh, hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist says that he, uh, he was uniquely sent and he was uniquely gifted. Uh, he was uh, uniquely sent by God. Uh, and he was unique, uniquely gifted by God. Uh, he is best man to the bridegroom. That's a very special uh, place. Uh, the bridegroom is Jesus. John the Baptist paints himself as the best man. Uh, but the best man's job is not to be the bridegroom. The best man's job is to point others to the bridegroom. Make sure that everything on the wedding day happens so that the bridegroom... Uh, gets to do what the bridegroom uh, uh, is there to do. And, and so uh, John the Baptist is saying, I'm the, I'm the best man, and my job is to, is to make much of the bridegroom. Uh, when I give my best man speech, it's not about me, it's about the bridegroom. It's not so that people will think, boy, didn't he give a good talk about, uh, give a good toast uh, for the bridegroom. No, it's so that people would look at the bridegroom and say, wow. What a bridegroom. John the Baptist clearly understood at this point who he was and what he was there to do. And so he says, Jesus has to increase and I've got to decrease because that's the nature of best man and bridegroom. The best man uh, uh, fades into the background. Uh, before the bridegroom shows up, the best man is a scurry of activity, making sure that all the details are taken care of, that all the uh, caterers are paid. The best man uh, comes, and sometimes it's the best man that pays the, the preacher. Uh, the best man makes sure that all the groomsmen, other groomsmen are in order. So the, the best man was the, was the uh, epitome of, uh, of, of uh, prominence uh, at a wedding 
before the wedding. But when the bridegroom shows up, the wedding begins and the best man fades into the background because the bridegroom is center stage. And John the Baptist did a great job. And isn't it great how that, that imagery uh, transcends time? I mean, we understand that imagery with a few, few little um, uh, contemporizations of it. But, but we understand that imagery that, that, that the bridegroom becomes centerpiece and the best man fades. And John the Baptist said, Jesus has to increase because he's the one. I've got to decrease because I'm just the best man to the one, okay? Um, so that's the end of John speaking. Now, just uh, New King James Version shows verse 31 through 36 as the words of John the Baptist. has quotation marks around it. Uh, I, however, believe... That And not just me, I'm not just speaking this with my own authority. There are footnotes in there, I'm sure. Uh, but, but I believe verse 31 introduces this commentary by John the Apostle, uh, the, the writer. Uh, verse 31, he's explaining something. He's doing some explaining. So uh, here's what he says, John the Evangelist. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven... Is above all. So, verse 31, he's saying Jesus is from heaven. John the Baptist is of the earth. And uh, so, uh, the one from heaven is above all. The one from earth is, is limited by his uh, earthly vision and hearing and perception and all the finitudes of humanity. Uh, that's a picture of John the Baptist. Verse 32, what Jesus has seen and heard, he testifies and uh, no, verse 32, again, New King James says, uh, capitalizes the H. I believe, verse 32, and by the way, in the Greek, uh, the he is just a he. There's no capitalization of it. It's, it's just a pronoun. Uh, and so uh, you have to do some interpretive work to figure out what is, who is the he uh, that, uh, that John's talking about here. I believe... Uh, that he's talking about John the Baptist in verse, in verse 32. What, uh, what John the Baptist has seen and heard, he gives witness to, and no one receives his testimony. Uh, he who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. God is true. For he whom God... Now, verse 34 is a different he. Verse 34 is Jesus. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So I think what you have is a parallel here. Uh, John, John is describing uh, in parallel ways. He's saying, all right, John the Baptist, uh, the Baptist he's earthly. I know this is a mess, but y'all just, y'all get it. All right, so Baptist is earthly, Jesus, heaven. He's from above, okay? That's one comparison. Second comparison, Baptist, his witness, although powerful, is only about the things that he has seen and heard. It's earthly. 
Jesus, his testimony is divine. And then the Baptist gives testimony. People don't receive it. But Jesus gives testimony, and he verifies that everything that God is is true and faithful, and you can depend on it. And as many as believe the testimony of Jesus, they receive eternal life. Okay? Um, Again, you can take that passage a lot of different ways. That's how I take it, uh, that uh, there's a comparison here in verses 31 and following between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus is heaven, heavenly. John the Baptist is earthly. John the Baptist is good. I mean, he's best man. But Jesus is heavenly. He's from above. He's the bridegroom. John the Baptist, he gives good testimony, but it's still limited by his humanity. Jesus gives testimony that is absolutely connected to God himself. There is no disconnect. His humanity did not get in the way of his testimony. And he certifies, he seals that God is true. Okay? And when you believe on Jesus, it leads to eternal life. John the Baptist, well, his witness is good as long as it points to the one who can give you eternal life. Okay? It's just like your testimony and mine. My, me bearing witness of G, uh, giving my testimony to you of how I was saved, that's great, but that doesn't save you. Uh, my testimony doesn't save anybody. My testimony pointing to Jesus and points you to Jesus and you connect with Jesus, that's what saves you. Okay? I, I'm just one pointing to the bridegroom. That's all I'm doing. In fact, that's all we're supposed to do. That's our job. Do you realize that's your job? That's this church's job. This church's job is to point people to the bridegroom, to Jesus. Your job, point people to Jesus. And which leads to the question, are are you really pointing people to Jesus? Well, we need to be. That's our job. All right? So, that's... uh, Okay, so we're on chapter four. Are y'all ready? Any questions up to this point? I don't know why I'm asking. I'm not going to answer. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Uh, say that again. I'm sorry. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at it. A uh, yeah, couple, of, couple of things. By the way, uh, I believe in mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. And in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, if Moses wrote it, then Moses described his own death. Now, how did he do that? Well, some have said that there is an editor who came in and put that line in there. I, however, believe that God, who is God, uh, and who inspired the writing of the words, uh, inspired Moses to put that in there. 
Uh, so I believe in this, that supernatural aspect of it. In the same way, now, it could be as simple as you just described. Jesus comes out, out of that meeting with Nicodemus and says, come here, guys, I want to tell you about my encounter with Nicodemus. Let me describe it to you. And it could have happened just like that, and that'd be just fine. There's no problem with that. But even if he didn't, my personal conviction is that John the evangelist, inspired by the Spirit of God, uh, uh, began to write the conversation as it happened because God was telling him to write it like that. So I, either way could work. It's easier for some people to believe that Jesus came out and said, come here, guys, let me tell you about that. Great question. Great question. Other questions? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. But if you're not really toward Christ, then you put people toward other places. Right. Yes. I think part of the problem is what we see, uh, in, again, in, in the biblical narrative. Uh, people, uh, if they're not focused on Jesus, if they're, not, uh, if they're not toward Jesus, they're toward something else. And so for the Pharisees, they're toward the temple. Uh, later on, we'll see, therefore, uh, they are toward their place, their station, their position, their power. And so uh, they're trying to point people toward themselves. Um, John the Baptist, however, the way we're supposed to be living, we're not supposed to be living like Pharisees, we're supposed to be living like John the Baptist. So what, what John the Baptist was doing is he was, he was all about Jesus. And so he was pointing people to Jesus even at the expense of himself. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, great lesson for us because one of the things that we need to uh, be wary of, and by the way, I some of y'all speak a lot. I know you do. I, I, I know. I, but speaking publicly like I do, um, it, 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 it is a very humbling thing to come back and listen to yourself speak because so often as you do that, you be, and, and you begin to weep because you, it, if you take it seriously, you, you think, my soul, I, I may have, instead of pointing people toward Jesus, I was pointing people toward myself. A great thing about having a wife and four daughters is they help you with that, with almost immediate feedback. Um, but truly, it, it, it's, it's, it's something that we all battle with because we are so self-centered. Um, I was doing some work on, the, on, on chapter uh, 13, 12 or 13. And, uh, and, and one of the commentators, B.F. Uh, Westcott, wrote a commentary on John's Gospel in 1885, and I was reading that one today, and, and he had this great line and says, um, uh, a selfish man will destroy himself. And, and that's what happens. Not only will we destroy ourselves, we'll destroy what God has desired to do through us. 
And that can happen in the individual life, but it can also happen in the church. Churches that die are churches that are selfish. That's why they die. And that's not some gen, uh, generality. That, that's because more people in the church are self-centered. The church becomes selfish. And it dies. And it's sad, but it's true. had a conversation today uh, with uh, uh, someone about a church that has, has really struggled. And uh, the core component of their difficulty. Selfishness. Self-centered. Just being selfish. All about me. And pointing people to me rather than pointing people to Jesus. All right. Got to move on. Got to move on. All right. Chapter 4. And we'll finish chapter 4. That's not anywhere close to chapter 10, but that is chapter 4. Chapter 4. I won't read all of it. It is the story of uh, Jesus encountering uh, the woman uh, uh, of... uh, uh, of Sychar, and uh, so uh, this, just call a couple, uh, call things. He 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 left Judea and departed again toward Galilee, Judea. So he's back here, and he's going from Judea to Galilee. Okay, Judea is this Samaria, Gal- uh, Galilee. So he's leaving Judea. He's going. Uh, to Galilee. Now, <clears throat> uh, verse 3, uh, that, that's verse 3. Verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. I, I don't know if you realize this. I, uh, my fir- one of my first sermons, not, maybe not my first one, but one of my first sermons was John 4. Um, and I have made great hay about verse 4. John chapter 4, verse 4 there is a Greek word that is used and it's the verb or day and it is translated there needed. It is divine necessity. Necessity. Oh, start over. Necessity. Yeah. Uh, That is the picture that that Greek verb right there portrays throughout the Gospels and even in the, the epistles uh, of Paul and John and Peter, it portrays divine necessity, divine mandate. Uh, Jesus needed to go through Samaria because God was sending Jesus through Samaria. It wasn't something that he just said, hey, let's take a trip through Samaria. He's, he, it, God said, you've got to go through Samaria. We see this in uh, 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 Luke chapter 19. Where he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree for I must spend time with you today. I need to eat with you today. I need to spend time in your house today. Again, divine necessity. You and I as followers of Jesus must live under the power 
of that divine necessity. We need to have the same kind of urgency to follow the path that God has set for us, that Jesus did, that led him through uh, the forbidden territory of Samaria. He goes through Samaria and encounters the woman at the well. That's not an accident. That's why he was there. The reason he met that woman at the well was because he needed to go through Samaria. It's because God sent him on a mission to connect with that lady and to change her life. She encounters Jesus. They have their conversation. You can read about it. Uh, and, 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 and ultimately and finally, Jesus changes her life. The, the, everything changes for her. You know the background, her story, married several times, living with someone that wasn't her husband, uh, kind of isolated from the community, going to the well uh, in the middle of the day when nobody else was there. That wasn't the normal custom. Ladies would go, like ladies go to the bathroom together, ladies would go to the well together. Um, was, that, was that wrong? Was that wrong? I live in a house full of women. It's, it's just natural. Anyway, so, so uh, you, I, mean, I'll, I, I sit at a table in a restaurant all by myself. That's it. They're all gone. Where did they go? Uh, they went to the well. Uh, and, and so, uh, but that, that's the picture. And, and, and yet this woman had to go to the well all by herself. Virginia's, I'm sorry. Uh, so they had to go to the well all by, them, all by herself. Jesus knew that she was going to be there. Jesus knew that this was the encounter. Do you realize that God has those kind of divine encounters for you with someone who is searching every single day? There's not a day that passes that someone doesn't come across your path. I was walking into a Crossroads building this morning, and, and there was a guy. And if you walk in the Crossroads building, it's a smoking section. Not officially, but by, by virtue. Uh, can't smoke inside, so they stand outside. But, but uh, there was a guy standing there I, I had not seen before. So I stopped and began to talk to him. And, 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 and conversation uh, continued, and he asked the question that I, I, man, I always hate it when they finally get to the question, whether it's early or late. I hate, what do you do for a living? You know, I mean, come on, man, really? I'm a preacher. Oh, 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 really? You know, and, and he puts out his cigarette, stomps on it, you know, I, that kind of thing. But, but we had a great conversation, and, and, and he said, man, I'd, I'd like to know more about your church. I said, man, I'd love for you to, I'd love for you to spend time with us and, and get to know us, and found out where he worked, and, and uh, I, I, I told him where I, my office was. I said, if you ever have any questions, come up, talk to me up. I'm on the sixth floor. You can come across the way. We're over there, and and pointed that out to him. It was a great, great conversation. That was my day moment today. We all, as followers of Jesus, have those moments where God is directing our steps to intersect with someone who is searching. Have you seen that moment today or have you ignored it? Part of my problem, when I preached this sermon the first time, I, I had just gone to the uh, park with Emily Catherine. As I was preparing the message, Emily Catherine and I went to the park. She was two, maybe. Uh, she was just learning to talk and learning to walk. And, and we went to the park, and, and uh, I was carrying her around, and, and, and she, uh, she wanted to see the ducks, you know. And that's just great. Yeah, I'll take you to see the ducks. And we go uh, see the ducks, and, and, and she runs up, and, and she, she sees somebody, and she says, Who's that, Daddy? 
And I said, oh, honey, just say hi. She said hi. And that person just walked on past and played with the ducks some more and went over to the swing sets and the um, whatever was over there. And, and somebody else was there. And she said, who's that, Daddy? And I said, oh, honey, that's... I'd just say hi and smile, and she said hi, and, and, and then that was the end of that conversation. And then uh, as we're leaving the, the, the ducks in the park, we're walking out, and somebody uh, is walking their dog, and Emily Catherine stops to pet the dog, and she says, who's that, Daddy? And, and, and I said, oh, honey, just pet the dog, and let's go. And, and, and I walk away, and I get in the car, and immediately I was convicted. Because I had three moments. Just talk about Jesus. Just point people towards Jesus. I had three moments. I didn't know who any of them were, but I didn't even ask the question, I wonder if they know Jesus. And that really became the, the, the nugget of the message that I preached. I used to preach a lot longer then, so it was about a 55-minute sermon then. Um, but I wonder how many opportunities we miss because our eyes are not focused. I think that's why Jesus told the disciples, lift up your eyes and see the fields, for they're white under harvest. And the crowd of Samaria comes running because the woman at the well told her, her not-so-friendly friends, Come see the man who told me all that I had ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came and they encountered him. And the scripture says that many in the village believed on Jesus. I wonder what would happen if we, a hundred and so many people in this room, if we left here and we made it our job our urgency to find that one person that God is crossing our path with and ask them, who are you? Do you know my Jesus? My granny Jenkins died several years ago. Um, and, you know, she, she's a hillbilly. And I've talked about her before. Granny Jenkins was my, uh, my grandmother's mother, and uh, uh, she died, uh, I guess she died, well, 15 years ago. Um, but one of the things about Granny Jenkins, up till the day she died, uh, she did two things, always two things. Uh, she dipped Garrett sweet snuff till the day she died. It's one thing she always did. Second thing she always did, anybody she saw, I mean anybody she saw, she asked them, do you know my Jesus? I wonder what would happen in Hampton Roads if we lived our lives like that. I believe it'll make a difference. Well, it made a difference in Samaria, and, uh, and uh, we see uh, toward the end of, uh, the, uh, of the chapter there uh, in, in, in verses 46 through 54 uh, that uh, Jesus returns to Cana. So he comes back up through Sychar into Cana, and uh, he comes upon 
uh, a nobleman's son, uh, this guy that's sick. Uh, his son is sick, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, uh, can you heal my son? He finds out Jesus is there, and already Jesus has gained a reputation for doing miraculous things. And so, uh, uh, verse 48, Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Uh, remember, this is the place where Jesus turned the water into wine, and the people were there uh, wanting to see him. Uh, they heard he was coming, so they had heard about the miracle. The miracle had blown up in the community, uh, so much so that this man from uh, Capernaum, I believe, uh, decided that he was going to find this, this guy that turned water into wine, see if he could help his son. And uh, the nobleman said in verse 49, Sir, Come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. Verse 50, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. I I just tell you, I wish, I just wish that we had that kind of faith. Here's a nobleman who decided that he was going to believe the word of Jesus. I wish that we had that kind of faith. And he went his way, not despondent, but expectant. And on his way, the servants came and said, your son lives. And, and uh, the nobleman said, when did it happen? He found out when it happened. He said, that's the same time Jesus said, behold, uh, go your way, your son lives. Jesus, Jesus speaks and that man believes and it's just amazing. I wish that I had that kind of faith. You know, I've got the faith that, that has awakened my soul to, to, to see Jesus as my only hope for life and salvation, but sometimes I lack that faith to pay the bills. Sometimes I lack that faith to be obedient to God even when I know it's going to cost me something on this side. We ought to learn from the nobleman about faith, but more importantly, we should learn from Jesus the power of his love. Um, he healed um, the son because of his compassion. Uh, verse 54 closes out uh, this, this narrative. It says, this again is the second sign Jesus did. You know why it's the second sign? Because it's the second sign. Uh, when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. All right, questions? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, actually, the the again. The, new, the King James says, whosoever. The Greek says, those who are believing. There, and there's no, there's no disconnect there. The, the only way to come to faith in Jesus is to believe on Jesus, right? Uh, the, that's the only way that's going to happen. Uh, but that doesn't discount the language that unless the Spirit of God does a work on you, it's not going to happen. Well, that, again, I try to stick with the language of the, uh, the biblical language without the theology of it uh, because it's safer for a preacher. Uh, but, 
But the language of the text is the Spirit moves where He will. So, we got to deal with the text. Ooh! There are other passages that are far easier. There are other passages that are harder in John's gospel, too, related to that, or more difficult. Uh, no, more challenging, challenging, more challenging. Other questions? Dick? Everything changes. Perspective changes. And that's why the disciples had, had gone off to find him something to eat. And they come back and, and he says to them, he, he says, man, I'm full. I, I've, 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 I've already eaten. And they said, they said oh, what, what did he eat? What did he eat? He said, he said, I have feasted on the will of God. I've done what God has given me to do. And that has energized me. Good word, Dick. Yes, sir. Uh, probably his attire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know that. I mean, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't have the the ringlets or anything on his face or anything like that. That's a later. That's a later Orthodox Jewish rendition. But but uh, there was something. I don't. I don't know. But probably his attire. Uh, uh, that physical features would have been the same as any other cat uh, a person. Cat daddy. Other questions? Great question, though. Hadn't thought about that. That's a great question. Other questions? All right. Nothing? Nothing? All right. Merry Christmas. Have a happy new year. <laughs>